Welcome to Talatera, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. Hello and welcome to February. How is your year going? Has it been nonstop busy since the holidays? For me this year, January has gone the same way that it went last year. But good things are happening, so no complaints. This got me thinking, though, about our fast-moving world, and really, is it any surprise that people don't notice the natural environment, much less remember where they put their keys or their glasses or other things that we reach for daily? I also thought about how I could make myself slow down and how I can help others slow down to be more mindful and observant. And this got me thinking about my conversation with Kimberly Beck, one of the first guests on this podcast. Kimberly is an environmental educator, a psychotherapist, and also the principal at Relational Rewilding Nature Guiding, where she offers rewilding programs and nature therapy. If you've been wishing for more quiet moments and have been looking for more stillness for you and for the people you interact with daily, I recommend listening to her episode to find out how Kimberly incorporates stillness into her programs. She has a thoughtful and generous practice. Enjoy. Welcome to Talatera, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Today, my guest is Kimberly Beck, environmental educator, psychotherapist, and principal at Relational Rewilding Nature Guiding, an educational organization providing rewilding programs, youth mentoring, and nature therapy. How does Kimberly explore environmental topics through a relational rewilding perspective? How does she design relational experiences on purpose? And how are her programs different from the environmental education programs we're used to? Let's find out. When did you realize nature was important to you? I first realized nature was important to me explicitly probably when I was about four or five. I very distinctly remember my relationship with my cat <laughs> um, and spending much time with my cat outside. And on some level, I had an internal inkling that nature and animals was restorative. Of course, I wasn't thinking that at the time, but it was the only place, either when I was outside playing mostly by myself, or I was spending time with my cat and other pets, that I felt normal, that I felt grounded, that I felt that I was okay and that the world was okay. But it was actually very young, probably around four or five years old. What type of activities did you play outside when you were young? Oh, gosh, that was so fun. I had a 
a stream and a forest in one of my backyards. I say one of my backyards, my parents were split. So I would divide time between mom and dad's house. And there was a forest and a stream that I would go off into. And I loved going down to the wet part of the stream where it was all muddy. And I was looking for tracks. They kind of, the tracks found me. I was didn't initially go out looking for them. But when I would see a set of tracks and I would just naturally start to follow them and sometimes would look up and find myself, you know, three quarters of a mile away from my house unknowingly. And I would start to create stories in my head about the animals that were making these tracks and where they were going and why they were going there. And there was so much imagination happening at that time. And I was a child that was very content being by myself and the the tracks and then of course the forest sometimes i would take some art supplies outside and do my own bark rubbings and leaf rubbings and and even very young i started taking field guides outdoors and started even trying to identify the different trees it was for some reason it was just a natural inclination i didn't even have a teacher for that but it really was the, the tracks in the mud that were incredibly significant that I have so many memories of. Uh, I also have so many memories of the maple trees in my backyard and sitting under those and smelling them and raking their leaves and jumping in them and taking animals, pets outdoors and spending time with them out there was, that was my happy place. That was, those were my toys. Yes. Those are good toys. Those are very good toys. I have a book in my library about it's called It's a Stick, and it's about how a stick can be so many different things. It's a children's book. Yeah, that's one of my, uh, one of my favorites. <laughs> and I love sticks. I, had, uh, I also had worked with sticks. Even in my adult life, I've done some a um, little bit of martial art practice with sticks, and we would also talk about the many uses of sticks outdoors. Um, for walking and for protection and for different martial arts and um, for dressing up and using as a grab tool. And I would love to find that book. <laughs> I'll send you, I'll send you a link and I'll, 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 also, yeah, I'll also post it in the show notes. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <Yes. laughs> great. Okay. How did your experiences with nature when you were young influence what you do now? And, and does it influence what you do now? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt, it influences. Nature has been the one consistent thread in my life that felt grounding to me. And so I naturally relied on it as a, as a source of my toys, as a source of inspiration. Um, that was just where I always spent my time as an extremely introvert child. And as every child struggles on some level during the growing years and with their parents, uh, that was a refuge for me. It was what helped me regulate myself. Of course, again, I didn't know that at the time. But my time outdoors and my time with my pets was how I came back into balance from the stress in my life, stress in school, stress in the home. And as I grew and developed, I knew that, again, I guess in my bones, that nature was a source of helping, of healing for everybody. And 
it naturally just turned into projects in school where nature was the focus. It turned into uh, projects in college where nature was the focus. It turned into a major in my undergraduate degree in uh, outdoor education and plant biology. And it turned into many seasonal jobs. As early as I could get a park ranger job, I did. <laughs> and you know, most people were working at you know restaurants and things during their teenage years. And I was blessed to work as environmental educator and I was blessed to work as a park ranger and I was blessed to work as a naturalist. And I started doing those actually pretty young. And if I wasn't working in those fields, then I was volunteering in them. So I made it a point in my life that nature was my life and that I was going to make that my life. And I haven't stopped. And the creativity, I believe, that comes from having a life in nature has continuously evolved into where I am today. And I have no doubt that that will keep evolving. I have no idea where I'm going to go with it. But for right now, I, I trust the path that I've had that nature has brought me to where I am and to doing what I'm doing. And uh, my whole intention is to create openings for people to have a similar opportunity of, of rest, of relaxation, and of deep health and deep relationship with the living world. You started rewilding nature guiding a year ago. What made you decide now's the time to do this? It was building. Um, I believe it had been building over a number of, of years. And, you know, I had, as I shared a moment ago, that I had worked very seasonally, as many people in uh, environmental education do summers and falls in different parks and different centers. At some point, I had stopped the seasonal work and got a full-time job at a, a humane society doing creating their education program. While I was doing that, I had also simultaneously started contacting the local government that I was working in, the local city that I was working in, and just asked if I can do some additional education programs and putting them out to the city. And they said yes. And I started, people were coming, <laughs> which was very exciting. As that was happening at the Humane Society, and of course, as you can imagine, working with animals, there's a lot of things that are beautiful that we see. And there's a lot of things that are really challenging. And I started being more curious about really the, the human aspect and why people do what they do that is unkind. So I, I decided to quit my job doing that. And I decided to go to graduate school for counseling. Um, I wanted to understand more about us and the nature of how we work and how we operate and why we do the things that we do. And if I could help heal people's hearts, then I can help heal the behaviors that we have toward one another, toward the earth, toward animals. Um, so that was really my impetus for going to graduate school. And and after that process, I actually, you know, I took a break from doing the environmental work. But after I graduated, I really wanted to get back into teaching and I wanted to get back into really explicitly connecting people with nature. And so as I was developing nature-based therapy for myself, it was stirring in me to also create some kind of entity where I can actually offer all of these pieces, where I can offer 
education about the local environment where I can offer nature connection opportunities and activities for people of all ages and also a guise under which I could offer the nature-based therapy that I was doing. And so even though the seed seemed to be growing and sprouting under the ground for quite some time, it just didn't feel like the right time. And I didn't quite have the right resources until about a year ago to begin putting this together. I'm still in the beginning stages of essentially doing this freelance education for the community. And so it's it's a growing process. <laughs> but I do feel like I'm really listening to what wants to happen on its own, as I've been listening to my inner callings my whole life. And uh, then I just... I follow instructions from there, but it has been a pretty creative process and I look forward to where the education and the nature therapy is, is going to be going in the next couple of years. You explore topics through a relational rewilding perspective. What does this mean? So relational rewilding perspective, I actually hold relational rewilding in, in two different ways. Um, one as a as a lifestyle and as a way of perceiving the world and walking through the world. And then there are the actual day-to-day activities or programs that I offer. And those on the outset look like even other programs that some other parks or um, organizations may offer, such as edible and medicinal plants, such as animal tracking, you know, programs like that. Yet when I say that I do them from a relational rewilding perspective, I really take care to weave in many, I guess what some people may call soft skills into the programming. So instead of just doing a lot of information transfer and really focusing particularly on the education piece. I do make the experience more personal and to help people tap into their, I guess, more primal self a little bit and their relational self that is bonded to nature. So some pieces that I may weave in is into even just a plant class is some breath work, is awareness of the four directions is working with the cycles and seasons, is doing some fun awareness activities of, you know, people closing their eyes and pointing out different things on the landscape that hopefully they would, (laughs) that they would notice. I work also with language. Sometimes I do this implicitly, sometimes explicitly of how do we speak about nature? Uh, It's very common to speak about nature through the word it. It is over there. It is walking through the woods. And to me, that's part of a larger paradigm that our society holds and that I would like to change to a more subjective way of speaking about the world. So I weave in language. And I also weave in people's experiences, their personal experiences, their personal relationships with nature and what it's like to be out there as a sensory being in relationship with the earth that is surrounding us and supporting us. And so we actually have some conversations in the programs about that. 
and you know, I don't make it too woo woo. <laughs> um, I'm, I could do consider myself a pretty easy, relatable person and pretty grounded. And, but I also think it's important to make programs uh, more personal and more relational. And so to rewild is really getting people back into their more primal self and into their senses and into a deeper relationship with the world versus just knowing about the world. They sound wonderful, your classes. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Well, I welcome you to come and join me sometime and we'll make sure it's at a time where it's not uh, in the negative. Group. <laughs> 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 Who takes your your programs? Are they in more individuals? Are there families? Are there groups of friends? Is it multi-generational? Yes. <laughs> um, actually, I've had less families. Uh, mostly it is multi-generational individuals. The programs that I do, I'm a contract instructor, for example, for the Denver Botanic Gardens. And in that, it is typically um, either small families, like a couple or a couple with an older child, or it's individuals that are coming to the program. And I get individuals mostly from age 20 to age 70. So that can make a, a fun group with different life experience. Again, just smaller families. And then the people that I see individually are usually young adults, ages 17 to maybe 30, 35 is more for the individuals that are in some sort of developmental stage and they're really wanting to grow in and with nature. So people come from all over the Front Range area. But yes, primarily individuals and, and couples. Do you follow up with the participants in your workshop? Do you ask for an evaluation when it ends? And do you have any indication if the conversations that you've started with them in a workshop, do they continue in the car or at home or continue on after your classes? That's a great question. And that is an area of growth for me. I do not do any formal evaluations after a program. Thus far, the best way that I have been able to track. One is really behaviorally, <laughs> um, reading people's behavior, reading people's participation, and also what they do after a program and how they engage with me. Almost everybody sticks around and talks to me and asks me further questions uh, after a program ends. <clears throat> I also have a number of repeat clients. So I've already had a number of people contacting me for this upcoming year that were in my programs last year and some were in public group programs last year. And now some are wanting me to come to their home and to their neighborhood to walk through their neighborhood so they can get to know the plants and birds and animals specifically in, in their neighborhood. And other people are, I see them on the registration list for programs that they are, they're coming back from last year. So the evaluation part, at least on a formal level, is something that I need to do more research and follow up with. But right now, it is really just through people's behavior that I'm reading and repeat participants. No, that's good. That's wonderful. That's very good. And I, I appreciate people's, you know, that aspect. Um, I know that Maybe scientifically, it doesn't hold a lot of a lot of water, but getting people's explicit 
feedback after a program, them sharing with me what they get. And I also actually build that into the end of a program. You know, I usually do a closing round of asking people what it is that they're walking away with or what hit them uh, most in a particular program or what is something that they learned. And so I, I do get some feedback there. And to me, that's more meaningful than something on a piece of paper. I like to really dialogue with people and just actually see how it is that they respond. I have actually, I'm thinking of a a child now that I had worked with that I ran into again, who came up to me and hugged me and had told me how she was taking care of her dog in a different way and how she, I think that she had seen a raccoon and that she had tried walking with a raccoon at night and not next to it, but essentially she was telling me that she was trying to imitate <laughs> the animal. And, and so those things are really special to me, knowing that a little spark has been left behind in a program and that they're walking away with some new perception of of the greater than human world that they're a part of. How do you reach out to your audience? Where do you find them or where do you find that they are coming from? Well, first of all, you know, I, I, I think in concentric circles, and I think a lot of networkers would <laughs> agree that, you know, whenever starting something, you always start with the people that you know, and the people that know them. So I started putting out a newsletter simultaneously as I was instructing for, for example, doing facilitated hikes for the Denver Botanic Gardens, also have done and working with the Audubon Society of Evergreen and Audubon Society of Denver. As I do those programs, also when I was work, uh, living in Longmont and I was doing programs in the city of Longmont, and every time I get a program, I get a registration list. And so every program, I just continue to add people to my list. And then I put out some emails and I put out relational rewilding newsletters that usually have some sort of topic or theme that I briefly speak about. And then I tell about upcoming programs. So, you know, it's, it's a slow process. I don't at this time work at the larger community level. I don't have large partnerships with school districts or businesses. Right now I am working just on the individual level and I get a lot of word of mouth um, invitations. Like some of my speaking presentations are just word of mouth uh, or people that I've even worked with in my therapy world, they've asked me to come and speak to some group either for a retreat or they have some social group meeting that they have somebody come and speak with. And so little things like that are actually very satisfying to me. And I'm not at this point, I'm not relying on relational rewilding nature guiding to pay all of the bills you know, I have other means of income. And so I'm not in this mad dash to make some large community agreements or to reach out to large numbers of people. I really like having more personal relationship with people and engaging with a smaller community. My hunch is as time goes on that that's going to change and shift. But right now, I enjoy the small groups and the individuals that I work with. You've taught the more for lack of a better word, the more common type of environmental ed program, the very content-focused seasonal programs that you've taught when you were a seasonal environmental Mm -hmm. educator. Your workshops that you do now are very different than the 
uh, again, more comment content focused workshop. How does preparing for these types of workshops differ? How do you design an experience on purpose? As an educator, initially doing programs more strictly from an educational purpose, I noticed that my preparation is much more acute, is much more specific, is much more dialed in. I think my perfectionist tendency tends to come out when I'm preparing for an actual primarily education-based program. When I do things in a more rewilding approach, the preparation is more relaxed. Regardless, it always entails going to the site of wherever I'm going to be. That might be up at our property up on Lookout Mountain outside of Golden, Colorado, or it'll be at a local park area or open space. Sometimes even in town, I can do a nature program in the middle of the city too. (laughs) Nature's everywhere. But the preparation is less specific because it's more dependent on what's happening right here, right now. And I cannot determine what's going to happen in a particular place and time. And I also can't determine what a person is going to come in the door with. And so the rewilding programs are more relaxing for me personally, (laughs) because I'm not being so perfectionistic on the information part. I do. I mean, there's definitely still some preparation there because information is a part of every one of my programs. But I really like, I'm really starting to appreciate the spontaneity that comes with whatever's happening in nature and whatever is happening for a particular person or the energy of a group at a particular time. Cause I just, I can't plan what birds we're going to see. I can't plan what the weather is going to be like. I can't plan for the wind. I can't plan for somebody coming in and not really wanting to be there. I can't plan for somebody coming and wanting to know everything just with their mind and trying to help them get into their body and their sensory system a little bit. So I would say that it's, it's less is more. I'm learning (laughs) Uh, as far as the rewilding preparation goes and really just following what's happening on the landscape and then creating some kind of experiment or some kind of opening for connecting a person or a group to whatever is happening in a given moment. Environmental ed programs are very content-focused how could they become more relational? Because, you know, these programs are taught on a very large scale. Yes. In the K-12 classrooms, they have NGSS to be mindful of. Museums have their own, you know, nature centers. They all have their own purpose and their own message. Mm-hmm. How can they become more relational, you think? Mm-hmm. Great question. To me, little added pieces, even into a large group. I mean, I've definitely worked with large groups of adults and large groups of children as well. And weaving in small pieces, um, one, such as gratitude, it can take 30 seconds for a program leader at the beginning of the program to share, you know, I'm so grateful for you to be here. I'm so grateful for the maple trees surrounding us. I'm so grateful for 
the sun and the eastern sky this morning. Everybody on the count of three, say something that you're grateful for and yell it as loud as you can. One, two, three. You know, so, you know, something like that. Um, also, like I was saying earlier, language. I hear a lot of environmental educators or park naturalists, they refer to animals as it. And I hear people use the word just. And, you know, so those little things of that really are just changing in the facilitator to be a model for how it is that we speak with the kin that we share our world with, um, to not objectify them and to um, treat them as subjects instead of objects. And to me, getting... And I think actually a lot of programs are pretty good about the sensory aspect, especially when it comes to youth. I don't think that often happens with adults. And I really like to do sensory work with adults. And it's something that I think we all enjoy. It taps into our primal self. It taps into our child self. And it also activates our brain. You know, we primarily have a dominant single sense of vision that we use. And everything else kind of starts to atrophy I also don't see that as a coincidence that, you know, we're having a lot of neurological and brain issues, but when we actually use all of our senses, that activates all parts of our brain and creates a more vital mind. And so I think it's incredibly important for adults as well as children to, to really get into their senses, to get into their body, to touch the raspberries, to touch the, even the rose thorns and to smell the dirt and to feel the cold water. Yes, it's cold, but feel it anyway. <laughs> um, and to really actually engage with the world instead of just talk about the world and think about the world. We actually have to be in the world and really of it. You have a no blue, no green program. And <laughs> you and it's a wonderful approach that is as you explain on your website, you know, a thousand miles from the nearest ocean, mm -hmm. you, have, you have this ocean program. How do you interpret the ocean to audiences who may have never seen the ocean or a seashell or felt or tasted the salty air or smelled seaweed? Because even here in Southern California, not everyone has made it to the beach. Mm. How, do you, how do you teach that from, from where you are in Colorado? That's a great question. <laughs> Regardless of whether someone has ever been to, whether it be the ocean or any other environment that they've never been to, you know, so much of us, we, we, we do live in our thoughts and we do live in our minds very frequently. And we've all seen images and seen videos, especially nowadays. And I utilize that. And, you know, of course, you know, that one of the ways of helping people to learn is to connect something to, to what they already know. And on, on some level, everybody knows something about the ocean, um, at least possibly visually or auditorily. And so I use that. I really like visualizations. I really like helping people to step into their sensory self and so that's how I would do that. Usually I'll have some exercise of, you know, having people close their eyes and even bring to mind an image that they have seen before, even if they've never been there, whether that was on the screen, whether that 
was a video or was just a, a photograph and to actually put themselves in there. And I mean, humans have such amazing imaginations that even seeing a still picture can really lead someone with appropriate guidance into almost finishing the story, finishing the story of what it looks like, of what it feels like on your skin, of what the moisture feels like on your skin, of what the air may taste like, of what it feels like to have your feet walking on the sand and to step on some, on some seaweed and to feel the hot burning sun on your skin. And I've never had a problem of people being led through something that they've never, to a place either that they've never been to or having an experience, for example, as an animal that they've never even seen. I think that's part of what's so beautiful about human beings is we have incredible minds, we have incredible imaginations, we have incredible sensory capacity, and that's how we interface with the world. That's how we also develop our brain. You know, one thing I speak about is that the brain is a terminal for our senses. So to be sensory engaged with the world, whether that be for real or even in, in your mind's eye, that that activates all different parts of our brain. And to me, that's an incredibly important part, whether I'm talking about the ocean or a, a desert or a snow-capped mountain. We do have snow-capped mountains here, but I usually don't do programs on top of snow-capped mountains. So, so yeah, that's I usually walk people through a lot of visualizations and even some discussions on their past experiences. If they have been perhaps to the ocean, they haven't been for a long time. Because to me, that's how they connect. That's how they connect is either through a memory or through an image, uh, through a visualization. So we start, we, that's how we begin. What brings people to your programs? People definitely come for different reasons, especially in the group versus individual. I find that people that come to organized group hikes and programs, they are looking for that education piece. My hunch, my sense is that they are looking for the education piece because that's what they expect, because that's what is primarily offered. So they come for that. And then I gently open some different doors for them of getting into their body and of breathing differently, of talking differently, of walking differently, and of perceiving and of seeing the world differently. So I do get some feedback that they that their education desire was met and that they hadn't expected some of the other pieces, but it was like a, somebody said once to me, if we had just done the plant walk with the plant names, that they never would have thought anything was missing, that it would have been a great program. But I had weaved in a number of different um, other soft skill activities. And that at least from this particular person that I got feedback from was above what they had expected. And it was just something different that they hadn't expected. So, and I like that. I like, I like people coming in wanting a program on a level seven and me giving them an 11. It doesn't every time, but I, I love to give people more than, than what they expect, but mostly they do come at least group wise on the, for the education piece. 
for individuals that come, they come for different reasons. Some people are coming for nature therapy, and so they're looking to shift some thoughts and beliefs. They're looking to see the world differently. They're looking to come out of living a stressful, depressed, anxious life. Um, they're looking to communicate differently. Some people come for that. I also have individuals that come for mentoring. I work with, I'm a therapist and I work so with other therapists that are wanting to integrate nature into their therapeutic process. And so I'll actually do some mentoring for them as we take a walk, take a hike, and I will help them create different experiments in nature based on what's happening spontaneously in the environment. Um, and so I get some counselors and therapists that are wanting to come for that. I get people that are wanting to come from really just trying to make their lives, their personal lives, their inner lives, as well as their relational lives better. And so that's where I do the nature therapy. So I get people coming for different reasons and asking people what it is that they're coming for, what it is that they're hoping for is, of course, one of the first questions that I'm asking people so I can, regardless of what's going on, that's what I center my work around with people. And then I really just try to weave in some above and beyond activities that can help them be more aware, more self-reflective, and also to transition what we do out in the field back into their life. Because being respectful, using kind, subjective language, seeing what another being's world is like by stepping into that being, these are all transferable skills to take into our human relationships to benefit that too. So not only can doing that help us see more wildlife, but it could also improve our relationships at, at home and at work too. Such a, a thoughtful and generous practice that you have. What's next for you? How do you want to end 2019? I guess what initially comes to me right now is two pieces. One is quality over quantity. To me, it's really important to continuously work, one, on myself, for me to continue to improve my nature skills, for me to continue to expand my personal awareness of myself and of the world. And as I do that, then I, I lead better programs. And even if I have the exact number of people that I did last year, if in my heart of hearts, if I know that I did them better, that I made better contact with people and that I helped people to connect more to the rest of the living world, I'm completely satisfied. And then on a little bit more of a technical piece is the technical part. <laughs> so, you know, engaging more with people and maybe continuing relationships with people outside of the programs more, possibly through social media, learning how to do that a little bit better and finding some models. I learn by learning from others. <laughs> um, so I like to, you know, kind of hook up people that are doing this well and getting some tips for them. I don't learn very well by myself. <laughs> so uh, I think that's, that's another piece of, of growing. So creating higher quality programs as well as learning how to reach out to more people. And that may just be me putting myself out there. It doesn't necessarily have to be over some technology platform. 
but it might just be making more connections and walking into other nature stores and seeing if they need people for programs and just talking more and just engaging with people more and connecting more. So at least people have relational rewilding nature guiding on their repertoire of uh, possible services. Should they need a speaker? Should they want somebody to guide a hike for a group for them? Or should they have some personal struggles that they just want to explore while being outside with me and with, with nature? So higher quality programs and, and reaching out more. I would be satisfied at the end of 2019. I think you are well on your way. Your program is presented very well through your, through your website. It's always good to get that feedback. <laughs> so thank <laughs> you. And I sure hope you're right. Uh, I do believe I'm well on my way. It's, as you know, this field is, can be challenging at times and can be often undervalued by people and uh, not really by individuals so much as by the society, I think, as a whole. And so my hope is for myself and other environmental educators that our time and our education is valued as a service, especially in a world of growing disconnection. And, you know, as a therapist, there's a lot of unhappy people out there, a lot of distress and a lot of relational discord happening. And so to me, these kinds of services are incredibly <laughs> valuable and incredibly important in today's society. And so I'm, I am hoping to work toward a paradigm shift that walking through the world in a more kind, respectful manner for all beings, I'm hoping that that will become the norm instead of the exception. Learn more about Kimberly's programs and read the articles she is sharing with you about how gratitude may increase generosity and reduce materialism by visiting the show notes for this episode at talaterra.com.